morning and welcome to those of you who are joining us by way of video. We want to we welcome you and tell you that we're glad that you're with us today. Last week we talked about worship and I encouraged you, really challenged you, to remember that as Christians, the first thing we do is worship God. The last thing we do is worship God. Arguably, there's nothing more important. And even in his commandments to us, God in the Old Testament wanted to convey from the beginning, no other God, no one else is to be higher in your life than me. God and God alone is to be at the top of our list. And we worship him. Now, I say that to you, and I said that last Sunday, recognizing that you can't dictate worship, right? I mean, I can encourage you to worship Him. I can tell you that God calls us to worship Him. But it's a little bit like as a parent, when you're trying to teach your children when they're young, you know, and you're trying to teach them to have respect for somebody. How well does that go? You know, I can hear some snickers because you know it's challenging, right? I mean, we can teach a child, well, we can tell a child that they're supposed to worship, excuse me, supposed to re respect somebody. We're going to meet so-and-so, and you need to respect them. And they may do it out of obedience. Maybe you have a relationship with your child where they can do that. But they're doing it simply because you told them, right? Now, maybe as they grow and they get to know the person, that respect comes more naturally. That comes from within. I think there's a real parallel between that and worship for us. When we talk about worshiping God, first of all, we have a question that strikes many of us is what, what exactly is worship? And I know there's been a lot of talk on that years ago. Thankfully, we're not dealing with quite as much of it today as we once did, but you would hear all the worship wars and the conversations about what is worship and is worship just the singing? Is it just a part of a service? Is it just something we go to? Is it an event? What is worship? And I bring up the respect because there's a real element of respect in worship. But it's not just in conveying through words. It's not just conveying in an attitude. It's living out a life of worship, right? It's demonstrating respect in everything we do and we say. Now I bring that up this morning because we finished up last year we spent a good part of the latter half of last year talking about being disciples. What does it mean to be a disciple of the Lord? What does it mean to be a disciple maker? And how do we incorporate into our lives this whole notion of being a disciple or an apprentice, a student, one who really seeks after the Lord and to become like Him? And then we started off this year by talking about worship because, in fact, if you're going to really follow Him, if you're really going to become a disciple of Him, then this element of, of respect, of deep reverence, has to be there. Because God calls us to do things that don't just naturally come to us. God's way of being, as you well know, is very different than we would come up with on our own. And without that deep respect, that deep reverence, without a real heart of worship for the Lord, following Him, 
Being his disciple is an incredibly challenging thing. I want to read a story to you this morning, remind you of one maybe, that, uh, that really brings this out to me. It's a familiar story, I hope, to you, but some of the details in this particular account of it might give us an opportunity to reflect and, and take away some things today that, that might be uh, encouraging and new to us in our, our worship of the Lord. You'll find this story in, in Acts uh, chapter 26. Acts 26, the Acts of the Apostles or the Acts of the Holy Spirit as we talk about sometimes. This is an account, a record written by Luke of the early church. And one of the primary figures in Acts is the Apostle Paul. Now Paul, as you may remember, was not originally a Christian. He was a Jew and he was an outstanding Jew. He was a very educated, a well-educated, obedient, faithful Jew. He describes himself sometimes, and even in this passage, as one of the top, one of the, one of the most faithful, diligent, obedient followers of God in the, in the Jewish faith. He has been on trial. That's where we're picking up the story of Paul this morning. And he's being brought before uh, one of the Jewish kings, the last of the Jewish kings, before the, the fall from the Romans. He is accused and he's brought before the king to give his defense. And we pick that up here in, in chapter 26, starting at the very beginning. It's King Agrippa that he's before. And the king has, is saying, in essence, to Paul, proceed with your defense. King Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you. I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. In other words, I feel privileged to be talking to somebody who already knows all about our customs and traditions so that I can make my appeal to you. It's interesting that he says, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you. I beg you to listen to me. The Jews all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They've known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee, and now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our fathers that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. Paul is appealing to the king to remember the promise of God that he made that someday he would send a Messiah. Someday he would deliver them from oppressive rules. Someday he would reinstate the kingdom. Someday he would restore things that have gone wrong and make them right again. And Paul is appealing to that. And he's saying that everything he's doing is based on this hope. This hope that even his fathers had. O king, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? 
I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. The Jews were interested in stamping out this upstart faith, right? They wanted to get rid of these people who were eventually to be called Christians because they were saying that this one who came who had opposed and been opposed by the ruling leaders of their faith and had had him killed, now these people are claiming he's alive again. And if he's alive, how are we going to discredit him? How are we going to stop this Christian faith from taking over? How are we to keep things the way they've been? Order the way they've been? And he admits, he confesses before the king, I too was like you. I was convinced that we needed to do everything possible to stop this Jesus of Nazareth. And then he proceeds to talk about what he did. And he gets to that point in his process when he was persecuting, we would say, or as he might say, when he was being most diligent in tracking down these the people of this new sect, the people who were claiming that this Jesus has been raised from the dead, he tracked them down not only in the area of Jerusalem, but he went beyond that. He went to cities even outside of the Jewish area. He was diligent to track down these people, to have them hauled before the synagogues or hauled before the courts, to be discredited, to be punished, but primarily to get them to discredit their faith. What he really wanted was under persecution for these Christians to turn around and say, no, actually, I don't believe he is who he said he is. Actually, I didn't see him. Anything he could get them to do to discredit this new movement and this supposed leader, this king, this risen Messiah. And then that famous event Famous meaning, I think people all over the world, even those non-Christian, but maybe have been around teachings of the faith, would have heard about. And that is this moment of conversion Paul had. Paul was on the way to Damascus, you remember? And he's going to persecute the believers. He's going to haul them out of their hiding places, their homes. And Jesus meets him on the road. We're in chapter 26, verse 12. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus and the, with the authority and commission of the chief priest. About noon, O king, I was on the road. I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, the language spoken in that place. Saul, Saul. Remember Paul's name before he was converted. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Have you heard that saying before? Does that strike you? Does that, does that ring a bell with you? I've heard it before, yes. Does it ring a bell with me? Absolutely not. It means nothing to me. Kick against the goads. What? I'm amazed that in today's translations we still have that in here. I haven't ever heard that in any other context than in this passage. Have you? Okay, I'm not alone. 
And for all the ways in which translators through the centuries have tried to update the Bible so it put it in language we can understand, there are still modern translations that include that in here. What is it about this kicking against the goads? I want to talk just for a couple of minutes about that this morning because it struck me as I was studying for this sermon. And I think it has real relevance for us today. This idea of kicking against the goads was a phrase used. It frankly came out of the Greeks at that time. The Greeks who lived in the area, the Greek culture. The Greeks worshipped a lot of different gods. And the saying was basically trying to, to, to talk about the futility, the, the uselessness, the pointlessness of humans trying to rebel against the gods. Why are you resisting them? Why are you, why are you pushing back against them? You can't control what they do. The gods are going to do what the gods want to do. And we're just going to have to live with it. That's what this phrase is all about. Now, it actually comes from something before that. It comes from the agriculture, which so many of the sayings in the Bible do. And in, and in a day where many of us don't understand, we don't live in, in that society, that type of, of way of life, We've lost the meaning of a lot of these things. Goading, maybe you've heard that used. Some old, old timers still might use that. Is the idea of prodding. And the notion was that if you're trying to get an oxen or a big, heavy, stubborn animal to do what you want it to do, you got to goad it. you got to prod it. you got to get it to move along. And it doesn't want to, and when you stick it with sharpened sticks or other instruments, it rebels. Maybe it kicks at you. And what do you do if you're trying to get the oxen to go ahead? You jab it again, right? You goad it. You pry it. Because you want it to do what you want to do, whether it wants to or not. So then they adapted that phrase, and they used it to illustrate this idea of the gods doing whatever they want with us. Now, bring it back to this passage, and it's fascinating that this is what our Lord Jesus said to this incredibly powerful, incredibly diligent Pharisee. Why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Paul would have known what he was talking about. In other words, Paul would have heard why are you resisting the gods? Why are you resisting something you can't change? It opened my eyes to something I'd not considered before. Paul's response, his first response is, Who are you, Lord? He recognizes with the phrase, This is... A God. This is a power. This is one who is saying to one who is not, why do you resist me? Why won't you do what I want you to do? Why are you going against my will? Not only is the light so overwhelming that not just Paul but all his companions hit the ground, but Paul hears the voice and he's challenged to recognize this is one far more powerful. And he asks, Who are you, Lord? 
You see, the relevance I think I, I think this has for us today is that we can't worship unless we have respect. And we can't have respect for somebody we don't know. Well, you can a little bit. I can respect an official that I've never met. I can respect them in the, the, the position they hold, the responsibilities. I can, ex I can maybe respect the authority. But am I going to have a deep personal respect for them if I've never met them? Maybe not quite the same way, right? And I'm certainly not going to be able to worship someone I don't know. Friends, I think it's really easy for us in the church today to talk about worshiping God. I think it's easy for us to focus, and even as I challenged you last week, to, to worship God. And that that is so important for us that that has to be the first thing we do. I wonder, I wonder if we worship Him because it's the right thing to do. I wonder if we worship Him because we know we're expected to do it. I wonder if we worship Him because we recognize that He's a higher power and authority. But do we worship Him because we know Him personally? Have we had an, such an encounter with Him that we learn not only of His power, of His might, of His majesty, which alone make Him worthy of our worship, but have we encountered Him in such a way to get to know Him personally? As a living person. Have you had an encounter like that? Have you had an encounter where he was so real to you that he shifted, your relationship shifted out of, out of just respect? It shifted out of, of just a, a respect of his, his might and majesty and authority to a sense of awe, to a sense of deep, thankfulness and gratitude does your worship come up in you and out of you because you know him and you know how good he is Paul is making this defense being accused of being a traitor of making an entirely radical and a, a, a total change in his life. Here's a man who had been esteemed as being one of the top Pharisees and persecuting the enemy. And now not only has he stopped doing that, he's one of them. It's hard to describe a more radical change in a person than what Paul experienced. And when asked to give close to his final defense, Paul's running out of opportunities. He's almost reached the top level of, of officials to, to appeal for his life. When put in that position, do you think 
He relied on what he'd heard. Do you think he could make such an appeal without a whole room full of attorneys based on some set of beliefs that he had agreed to, to follow? I don't know whether you and I are going to be put in a position like this in our lifetimes. We might. I don't know if you and I are going to be called on to give a defense. Not just for what we do, but for who we are. The loyalty and allegiance we have to God. To Jesus. But I'm confident that if you haven't already, we, you and I, are going to have an opportunity to present to someone else that this is not just a religion. That what we do, we don't do just because we're part of a religious body. We do for a real person. A living person who has all authority. I wonder if our worship isn't something we have to think about. I wonder if our worship is not something we just stop and and designate certain times to do. I wonder if worship is just an attitude in us, a feeling in us, a gratefulness in us, something that we can't not do. Can I use that double negative again? We cannot not do it. We know Him personally. He has touched us in such a remarkable way that our worship just comes out of us. We do it when we're not even thinking, if you will. Friends, I don't think that can happen. I truly don't think that can happen without ongoing personal encounters with Jesus. There are too many forces against us. There are too many forces against Jesus. I share this with you today because so much is riding on it. So much is riding on this truth. Most importantly, your own life. If you're going to be influenced by this Jesus, if He is truly going to be your God, if you are not going to be found yourself in a place, if, you're not, if you're, you yourself are not going to be found in a place of rebelling against God's will, you got to know Him. But even more, if you want to truly have a relationship with Him where you worship Him without thinking, everything you do is coming out of your worship. It has to come from personal encounters. And maybe you know like I do from somebody way in my past that I was very close to, a friend or maybe a family member, and they've been gone, or I've been gone from them for years and years. Maybe I still remember them, but is there an active influence? It tends to go away over time. That's why I say we have to continually have personal encounters with Jesus. Now let me, let me give you some encouragement and assurance today. Jesus wants this more than we do. Remember, Paul wasn't looking for Jesus. 
Jesus wants desperately for you and I to have personal relationship, personal encounters with Him. Living with Him. What do we have to do? Seek Him. Look for Him. Want that. Ask Him to come and make it possible. I want to suggest to you today that that's the heart of worship. Wanting desperately to have a personal living relationship. An active ongoing encounter with Jesus. Because when we want that truly, when we long for it, when we want nothing more than that, That's worship. May we worship the King. May we worship the risen Lord. May we live our lives forever with Him. This is our worship. Father, we're grateful for your love. We are so grateful that you come to